You're listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The 2023 New York Encounter just wrapped up, and we'd like to thank the over 400 volunteers who came to New York to help make it possible. We also want to thank everyone who made a financial contribution to the New York Encounter this year. And if you haven't, it's not too late. You can always head to newyorkencounter.org donate and contribute today. Good evening and welcome everybody to the encounter. Um, thanks for joining us at A15. Um, my name is Alberto. I'm going to moderate this event. This event is about um, well, my guest, which I'm going to introduce in a minute, and homelessness. Uh, we thought that homelessness is a great theme for the encounter, given the title of this year, Raging the Divide, Crossing the Divide, sorry. Uh, and the reason is that I, I believe that all of us experience the uneasiness of witnessing homeless people on the street and feeling incapable of doing anything to help them. The distance between us and them seems unbridgeable as the problem presents itself as overwhelming. Homeless people live in the same street as we do, and yet on many different fronts surrounding homelessness, it almost inevitably becomes us and them. As you probably know in New York, our LA or Seattle, the, uh, where we are from, um, well, I'm from Italy. Uh, it's the homelessness is significantly increasing in the past 10 years. So the, our speaker today is going to talk to us about a revolutionary approach that uh, it was a key moment for me to call Seattle my home, an original experience that I never encountered anywhere. Our speaker tonight, Rex Holbein, is a Seattle native. He ran a successful residential architectural firm for 30 years. In 2010, after befriending several men experiencing homelessness along the Fremont Canal, Rex started a Facebook page to raise awareness for those living unsheltered through followers, no, sorry, through the sharing of photos and personal stories. Today, that Facebook page has over 50,000 followers becoming a thriving and inspirational nonprofit facing homelessness. In 2017, Rex combined both architecture and community outreach in starting a social justice architecture firm, Block Architects, with his daughter, Jen Lafreniere. Okay, um, we're ready to start now after this introduction. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Albert. Um, All right. So, Rex, let's start uh, by talking about how this facing homelessness started. Yes, um, first, first I want to just, I want to give a couple of thanks. I want to thank Alberto and Burns Troyer for making this possible, for, to, for inviting me to be a part of this. And I, I want to share that this is my first encounter and the messages uh, that we've heard, my wife and I have heard uh, since being here, are so beautiful. They resonate so deeply and uh, matched really by the openness uh, and the joy in the faces of people here. It's really something you can feel. And I just, I just want to say that I'm grateful for this experience. Thank you. Um, beginning this was something that was not scripted for me 10 years ago. Um, I was a happy little architect working for very extremely wealthy people and um, uh, really getting to fulfill my artistic needs and still make a living. And I had moved my office to the Fremont neighborhood in Seattle 
And uh, if anybody knows Seattle, Fremont has the canal, the ship canal, going through it, uh, the middle of it. And this new office was right along the ship canal. And in this area, a lot of folks were living homeless. Um, the canal gave a place to hide out. There was a covered bench below my office. And while having conversations with uh, multi-millionaire clients, I would be also having conversations in the morning over coffee along uh, the canal uh, at this bench with people that had nothing to their name. And this, really, this crazy conversation uh, separation between people that were extremely wealthy. Um, to give a quick example, I remember one of the houses I was designing, the front door that I just sketched up cost $50,000. Right? And the people that I was meeting along the canal really owned, all they owned was on their back. And that was it. And so those very separate conversations were swirling within me. Um, I was struggling with it. I couldn't look in the future and see where it was going. But, um, but they were asking of me life questions about um, the fairness, about the, um, just the craziness of our world where we could have these two very separate uh, lifestyles exist, coexist. So one morning I was coming into my office uh, on the Burke Gilman Trail on my bicycle and there was two carts right out front of my office uh, filled with art and a man sleeping below and I, I tapped him on the shoulder, it was still just getting light and I said, when you wake up and if you're interested you can come to my office for a cup of coffee. I went into my office about an hour, hour and a half later. Uh, a, a man came to the door, about a six foot two black man named Chiaka, and he was there for his coffee. And uh, he sat down, and as we were drinking coffee, he pulled out about 25 pages of crumpled eight and a half by 11 and said, do you mind if I read to you um, a children's book story that I'm writing? And I thought, oh God. I, I am so far behind in my work. This is, I just want a cup of coffee, really. But as, as he said that, he began to, um, began to read it, and, and it actually turned into more of a performance. At one point, he is singing. At another point, he's dancing uh, parts of it. And about three-fourths of the way through, I, I start to tear up. And then he's crying, and then I'm crying. And when he finishes, uh, which is a really crazy moment, right? Two grown men who just met, uh, sitting across from each other crying. And when he finished, I just blurted out, look, I've got a shed outside that is filled with architectural supplies. It's a mess, because I'm a slob. And uh, if you clean it up, organize it, you can put all your art in the shed. And, um, and, then, and then hesitating, I said, finally, what I had what I had wanted to say, but I think I was afraid to say, I said, and you can sleep there too. And uh, in the morning when I, you know, he did this, cleaned it up, moved all his stuff in and spent the night. And in the morning uh, when he came in, he brought some of his artwork with him. And I, at that point, realized that he was really, and I know this word gets overused, but really a genius artist, really stunningly beautiful work. And he, told me that he'd been on the streets of Seattle for 10 years and that he was extremely frustrated that he couldn't sell his art, that he was basically giving it away uh, for art supplies and food. And so I said, look, why don't I start a Facebook page for you? And uh, we'll j I'll just take pictures of your art and we'll see if we can get a following. And for the next four months, uh, 
I did that nearly every day. He's a prolific painter. And, um, and he started to make sales. And it was really this beautiful thing, and I was getting very captured in his world. Um, and, uh, but he also, you know, he also had a lot of mental health issues, um, anger management, bipolar. And, um, and so we were learning to navigate that together. And one morning I came into the office, and on the Facebook page that I had started for him was a message from a 17-year-old uh, girl, a woman, young woman, and uh, it said, Oh my God, I think I just found our father. And another message right after it from her 18-year-old uh, sister said, oh, it is our dad, oh my God. And then a whole string of messages from Chiaka's sisters and his mother saying how much they loved him and that they wanted him to come home to Pittsburgh. And so I was reading this just mouth open and right then Chaka walks in the door, he's got his paintings and I'm going to photograph that day and I said to him, I have to read to you um, these comments and when I do and I turn around, he's just streaming tears and he says, I have to go home. And he explains to me that his mental health had him leave 10 years prior because he was afraid of ruining his daughter's lives by his mental health problems. So he spent the night at our house, actually went to uh, Fred Meyer first and we used up all of his food stamps on a feast for kings. You know, he, he bought us, uh, bought both of us uh, more food than we could possibly eat. And um, in the morning I took him to the airport and said goodbye to this man that I had just met now four to five months before and who had become an extremely good friend. And on the way back home uh, on I-5 from the airport back to the office, you know, I was just bawling. And I realized what he had done. He had, he had just singly uh, changed my view of homelessness through, just through his vulnerability, through his kindness and, and opening up to me. And that's when I started a Facebook page, um, hoping to do the same for other people that were outside, hoping to just show their beauty. And um, I will say that uh, what came next I could not have foreseen. Uh, my office, once I started to do this, my office turned into a drop-in center, especially when I said that the bathroom was open for use. Um, people walked for miles to come and use the bathroom. And, um, and then suddenly there was tea and coffee and, uh, and with the Facebook page and these stories being told, uh, a lot of people rushed forward to offer help and supplies. And I've, one of the things that I just want to comment on is that I've heard this message over and over already at this gathering, uh, at this encounter, and that is that we can't go alone, right? Like, it takes all of us together in community. And I, I can tell you that I would have stopped maybe four or five, six months later, uh, posting stories and photos of people that are outside if it were not for community rushing forward and sharing similar feelings. So um, I had a couple years of crisis. My, I would come home getting nothing done with my architecture. My wife would say, um, Cindy here would say, um, well, did you get anything done today? <laughs> I go, no, I had to go to someone's tent and do CPR. <laughs> you know, or, or this woman came in today all bloody and she had just been raped. Right? So, 
everything that was coming in my office doors was suddenly more important than architecture. And I went from making really good money to two years making less than poverty, and it became clear that I needed to quit my architecture practice and, um, and begin a nonprofit, um, which in turn, I would say, changed my life. Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The New York Encounter is a three-day cultural event that takes place every President's Day weekend in Manhattan. Every year, we bring together speakers, put on exhibits, and host musical shows, offering opportunities for education, dialogue, and friendship. Following St. Paul's suggestion to test everything and retain what is good, the Encounter aims to discover, affirm, and offer to everyone truly human expressions of the desire for truth, beauty, and justice. To learn more about the New York Encounter, visit newyorkencounter.org. Um, so, in which, to, so exactly facing homelessness, uh, what what um, what did you become after this first encounter? What was the first step you did for creating the nonprofit? Yes. What what was the what was the original shape? Yeah, well, the original shape was to. Um, to be honest, to simply try to create a means to continue the work. Um, uh, I, I, I felt very strongly, one of the things that I learned was that um, community needed to be involved. There, it became very apparent, I felt deeply, um, I would say ashamed that we were all talking about wanting to end homelessness, and yet I, it was becoming very obvious to me that we were excuse me, but we were living a lie, right? Like we weren't going to end homelessness unless we all got involved. And so one of the first thoughts was, if I began a nonprofit, what would it do? And it became abundantly instantly clear that the nonprofit would need to find a way to bring everyone involved. And it would do that um, by showing the beauty of each person because this is what happened to me. I can only share my own experience and that is that the negative stereotype disappeared for me because of the beauty of the people that I was meeting, starting with Chiaka but then so many other people. Um, and you mentioned this uh, point that you, you had this issue with work as well, so you made me think of the problem that a lot of us have when they think about homelessness is this paralyzing for the science. We, it's hard to think what's, what can we do? It feels like a problem we cannot really solve. So do you have, um, what, what is, where, where do you start from every day? Right, so that's a, that's a completely valid question <laughs> because I think we all know that, over, that homelessness is incredibly complex and overwhelming. I think we've probably all experienced it and in that moment of being overwhelming that we are paralyzed. And I think this happens often in our life. I think climate change right now is doing the same thing to us. We have a, we have a difficult time with two things. We have a difficult time knowing where the entry point is and we have a difficult time knowing, believing that we can actually make a difference in the face of something overwhelming. And I, I want to give a, a quick example um, of how to actually combat that. Um, and if you can relate in your job, being given a task um, of a project that maybe is just, you know, like overwhelming, it creates almost the fight or flight syndrome within you. You don't know how you're going to do it. And after you get done with your mini freak out that this was being asked by Monday to have finished, right? Um, 
we all have learned the skill of taking that task and breaking it into smaller bite-sized chunks and then we go through some process that prioritizes those smaller pieces we also determine what we can do and what we can't do and who we need to ask for help with getting it done right and this path actually takes care of the fear that we have about accomplishing the task, finishing the project that it was given to us. Um, this fear is what puts us, in my opinion, what puts us into this stalemating, into this being overwhelmed to begin with. And uh, it shows up in, in many ways uh, with regards to homelessness. Um, afraid that maybe I'll say the wrong thing. Maybe I'll do the wrong thing. Afraid that maybe I'll be harmed physically, maybe I'll be harmed emotionally, maybe I won't know uh, if someone accepts my help, how to say I can't help anymore, right? All of these, all of these uh, fears are barriers within ourselves. Um, often we talk about homelessness, we talk about the barriers of homelessness, we talk about the barriers that the person that's experiencing homelessness uh, experiences, whether that's mental health or housing, or drug addiction, um, but we don't ask enough what are our own barriers of getting involved. And this is actually the important part. If I was to share anything in this talk, it would be that we have to look inside of us. What are we doing that is keeping us personally from getting involved in helping solve uh, homelessness? And I, I, I want to give one example, a quick one visually, of um, I think how we view homelessness with regards to it being overwhelming. So if we could get the next slide. A slide of approximately 10,000 faces looking out at you. That's a number that's uh, just over the number of homeless in Seattle in a city of 750,000 people. Um, in the county, there's about 12,000 homeless. And the, the faces in this photograph have been minimized so much so that they slip into almost just the oneness uh, of, of the photo, right? Like all those 10,000 faces cannot be distinguished. They're seen as one photo. And this is how we see homelessness. 10,000 people, and we talk about them as a group, which is crazy because they're 10,000 individuals. They, they don't constitute a group. Right? They only constitute us naming them as a group. So we can do something about this, though. And the easiest thing for us is to come closer. So if we look at the next slide. So here's 112 of those faces that were embedded in that photo of 10,000. And something begins to happen for us when we jump. We make this leap of to 112, is that we can start to differentiate we can begin to see the difference between one person to the next. And if we go to the next slide, to 28 faces, we can do more than differentiate. We can actually begin to identify. That looks like my Uncle Sam, or the woman next door, or the person that I buy groceries from, right? And if we come even closer, one more slide, to six, right? Now, we begin to ask ourselves about their story. We begin to wonder, who is that person? How did these six people get in this photograph? What's going on in their life? And if we come to the next slide, in front of one person, Bobby, and this is what's important is Bobby has a name, right? He's a human being. 
Bobby is 76 years old. He's First Nation Cree and lived 10 years on the streets in Seattle because of arthritis in his hands. He couldn't work anymore. He lost his ability to make an income. If we go to the next slide, Dinkus, right? Dinkus was one of the first people I met on the bench below my office. His, his, his favorite thing to tell you was, and he told you this all the time, he would scream out at you as you were leaving. If you aren't making one person smile a day, what are you doing? Right? So, uh, I like this metaphor of the, like, to compare it to our daily experience of saying, like, how do you break a task? Um, and you get down to one person, and you made this step uh, to the first person you met. Why do you think, though, anybody is capable of doing that? Or do you, do you think so, actually? Do you think that any of us can approach a person, a homeless person, I do. I think we can approach a homeless person just like we can approach a homed person. There is no difference between a homeless person. Sometimes people will ask me, aren't you afraid to go out and meet people on the street? Um, and I say back, you know, to be honest with you, I'm actually more afraid of people inside. There's a lot of scary people living inside, right? Joking around because our paradigm is to view people that are living outside as scary. One of the things that that has to begin to happen for us to get over this. And, and we're talking, when I say get over this, we're talking about othering people that are homeless, right? Like making them the other. So a couple thoughts. One, one is that um, we need to, to know that the homelessness crisis is actually a symptom of a larger crisis. It is a symptom of a community crisis. And this is a really important distinction because when we say homelessness crisis, we talk about those people over there. And we continue to talk about it intellectually in our head about what's going on with that group. When we talk about it as a community crisis, we have to include ourselves. We are part of, we are all part of community. So the trick really in coming closer um, which is one of the things that Facing Homelessness talks a lot about. Um, we say, the closer you come, the more you feel, the more you feel, the more you act. And I'm going to give you a quick example. Often we view homelessness from across the street. In fact, when we see homelessness, often we'll cross the street to continue on our way. Okay? So when we see homelessness from across the street, often our questions are intellectual ones. They're in our head. We're trying to gather information to give us uh, some sense of what's going on. We might ask, um, where did they get all that stuff? Are they a criminal? Are they a druggie? Maybe the most important question of all is, am I safe, right? But if we take the initiative to come closer to begin to cross the street, those intellectual questions of information gathering change begin to morph into questions of the heart. Such as when you come up to that person, you can say and ask, are you okay? You know, what is your name? Can I come visit you again tomorrow? I'm going to a meeting right now, right? Those are fundamentally different questions by coming closer. Um, and I, I, wanna, I wanna say one more thing about, uh, about uh, coming closer. 
it's very easy when we talk about homelessness and people that are getting involved and people that are not getting involved to to label the people that are not getting involved to help as not being compassionate okay and I don't believe that's the case I, I believe every single one of us um, the globe over are compassionate kind loving people so I don't think it's about compassion I think it's only about proximity the people that are not getting involved just have not come close enough yet, right? And this is a way that we can help each other by encouraging each other, by, by coming together as, as whatever group it is to, to make you feel comfortable to come closer so that you can also ask the questions from the heart. And a quick, a quick example of that is uh, if you're having a dinner with the person you're, you're in love with, let's say, right? Or your best friend, um, and you're at a fine dining place, and you're really enjoying a delicious, beautifully cooked meal. Across town, there is someone under a bridge who has, uh, has a wound that's bleeding out, that's living uh, without basic needs being met. And the only reason that you could enjoy that dinner is because that person is a mile away under a bridge. If you took that person and you just transported them right to the floor next to you when you're having your beautiful, fine dining experience, you couldn't do it, right? So what we've done is we've insulated ourselves. This is about crossing the divide. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. If I may, I, I think what you highlighted is the fact that we all are compassionate, so that we all have this potential. But then why, why acting on it? Like, um, is there something that you feel like you gained by acting upon your compassion? That, so that you, you can say, it's not just something that you could do, but it's something you should do. I th I th absolutely. I mean, uh, we're all taught this. Right? I mean, I think everybody as a child all through their growing up is taught it's better to give than to get or so many lessons about the rewards of, of giving kindness. Um, I don't know what it is about daily life that makes that so difficult, but I can tell you from my own personal experience and everybody that I've had the beautiful pleasure of meeting since starting this work um, is that the experiences are the same for everybody, is that you go in uh, rushing to help somebody and you find in the end you're the one that benefits the most and it, it happens it happens constantly um, one of the campaigns that we um, facing homelessness has and I should say all of our programs are designed to just provide simple entry points because we know if we if we expose the whole giant overwhelming world of homelessness people will still go ah so we have a bunch of programs uh, such as the Window of Kindness, Community Cleanups, um, and Just Say Hello. And our Just Say Hello 
campaign is asking everybody in Seattle, and now everybody here, to just say hello. This is something we all know how to do, but you may or may not know this, most people that are homeless feel invisible. They feel completely shut out in their greatest time of need, right? So by saying hello, you're not saying that I can fix your problems. You're not saying that I can spend money, even though if you want, you can. What you are saying is you're a human being that deserves dignity, deserves to be seen, and deserves to know that I'm seeing you and that I care about you and I hope you're doing all right and I'm gonna take the time to connect. Now the important thing about, about this is that um, we get good at everything we do. Um, we know that if we, want, if we want to be good at tennis, you gotta practice, right? So we also get good at acting on our empathy. So when you walk past someone that's homeless, and you shut down your empathy, and your empathy's feeling sorry and, and taken by this person, there is a skill that you're learning. And you do it enough, and you will get very good at it, right? So, uh, the contrary. You learn to act on your empathy and your compassion. It gets easier and easier. You get good at that as well. So. We're encouraging people uh, to, t to take those simplest early steps. My experience in working, uh, in helping with facing homelessness, which is kind of limited, unfortunately, uh, is that I felt um, that um, connecting with this compassion that is in me uh, by interacting with homeless people uh, gave me a feeling of being more myself, becoming this, this compassion is, is part of me, and I connect to it, and I feel more myself. Do you think, do you agree with this statement? Do you think it's something that reconciles with your experience? Uh, absolutely. I think it's beautiful that you just, you just said that. I mean, I think, I think we're, I, I mean, we all know that we shouldn't be living in a world where people have infinite amounts of money and other people are struggling for basic needs. I mean, it doesn't take a rocket science to, scientist to figure out that's wrong. Right? That's just wrong. So when we live in a world that has made that okay, right, we have this internal issue within ourselves. Um, and I think it just builds upon itself. We can become more disconnected all the time. I, I want to tell a really quick story about a friend that I had made that was sleeping outside. His name is Darwin. And Darwin um, is, was an, is an alcoholic and was sleeping in a six foot wide, three foot deep uh, entry into an office building. And he would get up in the morning before the office building, people would show up. Uh, and I, I would ride my bike in the morning and I would go right past where he was. And one night, it rained all night. And I don't know, I don't know if you've heard it rains in Seattle, but uh, it rained sideways all night. And when I got to Darwin, he was sopping wet. It was still raining. I had my full gear on. I was just getting to work. And I got to him and I said, Darwin, oh, you're sopping wet. You, you need to come to my office and, um, and dry off. You can sit by the heater. So he came about uh, half an hour later, gathered his stuff. And he spent the entire day in my office. Um, and right about, and it rained all day. And right about the end of the day, he stood up, there were some dividers, and he stood up and he said, hey, Rex, I, I just want to thank you. 
And I stood up and I'm looking at him and I'm also looking past him and the rain's still going and I thought, yeah, of, well, of course, you know, you got to spend a whole day out of the rain. And like he read my mind, uh, he said, and it's not because it's been raining all day. It's because today I got to be a part of something normal. He said, I, li I listened to you have normal conversations on the phone. You had a client come in. You had a normal architectural back and forth conversation, which I have no idea what a normal architectural conversation <laughs> is. Uh, he even remarked that the uh, UPS delivery man had genuinely said, have a nice day, right? So he was picking up on things that I was just taking for granted. And then he said something, and this was pretty early on still when I, when I first started this, and this, this changed me. He said, when you're homeless and you live outside, it may appear that you're mingling with everyone else. He said, but you're not. You're living and divided out by a giant plexiglass divider. And that the only people that you get to talk with are those on your side of the plexiglass. And what occurred to me in hearing this is that when we walk past people without saying hello, we're creating part of that plexiglass divider. We have this opportunity, uh, and it's apt to be at a, an event uh, talking about crossing the divide, but this is our opportunity, right? To take a little bit of that plexiglass wall down, cross over and reach out to someone that is truly suffering. And, um because of time, I can't unfortunately go more deeper into this. It's very, I think it's amazing that you were willing to, well, in a sense, make them participate with your job. But then you also move forward and you, you combine this new uh, activity, this new group that you started with your job. Can you tell us a little bit about the block project? Yes, so um, the the block project, I can start by saying, has consumed us <laughs> um, in the most beautiful way. But um, the block project uh, is something that my daughter, uh, Jen, who is also an architect, uh, and I uh, dreamed up because we began to have Friday morning coffees and talk about how could we use the principles that Facing Homelessness was developing uh, as architects to, to create a solution. And, and that came a little bit from one of the things we say at Facing Homelessness all the time is to volunteers is answer these two questions. What are you good at and what are you passionate about? And take the answer of those two questions and create a life project for yourself to help people in need. If you're good at it, you'll make a difference. If you're passionate about it, you'll stick with it. And so my daughter, Jen, and I then began to use um, our architectural knowledge to create a solution. And right away we said, well, we need to design a house, right? A small home. But the problem is that we also needed to bring community along. Um, this is the foundational belief of facing homelessness is we're not going to end homelessness until community is involved. So how do we do that? And we came up with the idea that we would put these block homes um, in backyards of people and it would be the first and only, at this time, integrated solution for addressing and ending homelessness. Um, and 
it, it stems a little bit from uh, asking both sides to come closer, right? Like we're asking everyone here and everyone in Seattle to come closer and, and also by bringing people that are homeless into community, directly into community. Um, I'll tell you real quickly, the homes have, uh, they're 125 square feet, they have kitchen, bath, sleeping. Um, they are designed to be completely off-grid. It was important to us to make these as dignified as possible, and one of the ways that we could do that was to make them the most cutting-edge, uh, sustainable home on the block, on any block. Um, so they have solar panels for all their energy, all their cooking, they have water catchment for drinking water, um, and they have on-site uh, sewage treatment with composting toilets and subsurface gray water irrigation. So um, this, uh, this is a project that we then brought to Facing Homelessness and, and um, uh, you know, it was a little bit of convincing, right, because we were already swamped. Um, they, they partnered with us, uh, so Block Architects and um, Facing Homelessness, to take care of what is really a full array of services and working with community to bring people into the solution of ending homelessness. Um, my daughter had to quit her job and I had to step down as executive director and become creative director at Facing Homelessness and we started Block Architects to make this happen. What I want to share about this is, it's, we have, right now we have nine homes that are built and um, and we'll be, uh, I think there are five uh, housed right now. Um, within the next few months, we'll have all nine housed. Um, and it's very easy to talk about the benefits to the people that were homeless. It's kind of a no-brainer, like their lives have changed. We, we were at a, um, at a home uh, welcoming, just uh, Burns here in the, in the audience, uh, was there as well, giving a talk, and and then Tony, the the, the new resident, um, spoke spoke about six words and had everybody crying. Right, it's really easy to see how profoundly beautiful it is for people that spend a long time suffering, um, and then get to step into a home that is, um, you know, built beautifully just for them. And um, but what I want to say is, it's not where the most profound change has come. The most profound change has been in the community, right? The hosts that stepped forward, um, all the people, the thousands of people that have contributed um, all the legal, I mean hundreds of thousands of dollars of free legal work has been spent on this project because you can imagine it's a legal nightmare. Um, uh, all the landscape architecture, free landscape architecture, um, the construction basically has been paid entirely by community. We don't, we don't have any grants to build these homes. Um, um, construction, uh, engineering, all the engineering, um, civil, structural, um, mechanical, all of it's been donated. Uh, and then there is the personal change that people have realized in their life, and I'm, I'm going to put uh, Burns Troyer on the spot by saying he's he's one of these people that there have been so many of, but he's a perfect example. He had a a, a really incredible job at a at a national construction company, Turner. I don't know if you've heard of Turner before. If you have Turner here in New York, but he left that job to take a considerable pay cut to come work for the Block Project. Right? We've seen this kind of giving 
happening um, one person after the other. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I'm profoundly, profoundly moved by the fact that we're hoping to put one of these on every block in the city of Seattle. You are listening to the New York Encounter podcast. The Encounter is entirely volunteer-run and donation-funded. And as you probably realize, it takes a lot of money every year to put it on. What that means is that if you want The Encounter to continue its work, we need your help. Head on over to newyorkencounter.org donate and consider making a monthly donation to sustain The Encounter in its work. Thank you for your support. And so in one thing that maybe could be final note, I, I remember my experience when I helped building the first house, uh, my contribution was uh, fairly null because I'm very bad at practical stuff. So I remember that when I went there, they told me, um, I just um, wipe the ceiling, there is dust on the top of the ceiling in the room. And I thought like, I don't, wipe the ceiling in my room. <laughs> I, I was really struck. I thought, like, it's actually amazing that we pay attention to these details, that we, we want to deliver the best, actually, to the poorest of us. I, I thought, like, it gave more gratuity to the, to the action itself. And, and also, you highlight the importance that the, the whole project has on beauty. And in fact, I'd like to ask you, uh, more about this if, um, if you say like um, if you had this in mind or if it's something that I just uh, notice No, I, I think you're putting your finger right on it and I've heard the word beauty said many times already in in these last two days and um, I, This project began by seeing the beauty of person right like this is what would personally moved me out of my path as an architect to actually abandon that and begin a nonprofit because of the beauty that I was seeing in the people that were being unfairly judged through the negative stereotype. It was, it, it really was completely um, wrong, like morally wrong to make people into monsters that were really beautiful people that were just suffering through some life event. And so beauty is at the center of this entire project. Um, I will tell you that the first host we're running behind because you're supposed to be seeing a lot of um, uh, photos at this point on the blog project. I think they're coming soon. But um, Kim and Dan were the first host family to have uh, Bobby, who you saw earlier, um, live in their backyard now. And Kim, in the beginning, would say, I don't understand why you guys are making this home so beautiful and why you're taking such care. And then after it was completed and after Bobby moved in, um, I think the next slide is about Bobby, or Kim and Dan. Almost, almost timed right. So uh, Kim said here, said, I don't understand why you're taking such care. And, and then after Bobby moved in and they were spending evenings listening to his stories about going to school with, you know, with uh, dog sleds, and all the things that they were learning about him as a human being, when she would go back to her house, right, she said, I've come to love him so much that if I, if I was leaving a shed of some sort to go live in my house, I couldn't do it. I would feel guilty, right? So this is a very important thing is that 
we don't want to just provide shelter. We want to provide something far beyond that that sends a clear message to this person that you are loved and you are someone that we want to see succeed. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, you are now on a path for your life to take a positive, beautiful turn. And uh, so to conclude, I was wondering whether you could uh, tell us about what, uh, what, what, what is up for us, like what can we do? What do you think is the first starting? But let's say that this audience is completely captivated, which is the case. <laughs> so what do you think should be the first step? Well, I would say to recognize that you have uh, an important part to play. And, and I, would, I would start by saying that um, I believe firmly that if you open yourself to just one social injustice, you will beautifully open yourself to all social injustices. It's not just a task, it's an awareness, right? So it's about, at the end of the day, it's about your life journey. This is, when we talk about ending homelessness, what we're talking about is asking each and every person to begin their life journey to come closer and to ask yourself, what are your barriers? Why are you not rushing forward to help people that are suffering? Right, that's a legitimate life question. Um, I would encourage you to just say hello and, uh, and begin your journey that way. We don't jump into the deep end when we first learn to swim. We go into the shallow end and splash around in the kiddie section. And I would say start in the kiddie pool of homelessness. Do things that are easy for you, but continue to challenge yourself. To continue to be on a journey and, and it will fuel you. You do not need to know the solution to begin. You can just begin, right? This is a very important thing to remember, um, to just begin. And finally, I would say, um, be a messenger. Tell people about um, the importance of addressing the basic needs of human beings that are suffering. Um, when you hear at a dinner table conversation somebody saying something disparagingly to a person that's homeless, stick up for that person that you don't even know, but that you know is suffering, right? Be a messenger, be someone out there that puts your stake in the ground and says, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna let this be moved. If you'd like to know more about the project, we put stickers on your chairs, uh, but um, I believe the website is facinghomelessness.com. There's uh, facinghomelessness.org is the website, and then there's uh, the blog project, uh, org and um, the dash blog dash project.org, sorry. And, um, and then if you are on Facebook or Instagram, uh, please follow us there. It's, it's, I always feel guilty asking people to follow the site because it's like, oh, you know, get more likes. Um, it's not about that. It is about beginning your journey, right? There's a lot of people that um, comment and add support. A lot of the people that we post about come into our office and then read the comments and sit in the chair just bawling for the support that they're getting because they're not getting it anywhere else in their life, right? So it's important, your voice, your compassion are very important, uh, especially when you share them, right? It doesn't help to just hold it within. Okay, uh, with this we have concluded, so please let's thank our speaker.
Thank you for listening to the New York Encounter podcast. We hope you liked what you heard. If you did, please consider posting a review on whatever platform you listen on. Those reviews really help the podcast reach more listeners. If you share the podcast on social media, please tag the New York Encounter. On Twitter, we're at NY Encounter.